Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Dr. Lydia Musa. I actually met Lydia whilst we were working with a client early this year. Lydia is an organisational transformation expert. She combines knowledge from her PhD in change facilitation with over 10 years of consulting and change management training. Lydia is also the author of an upcoming book, Navigating the Chaos of Change. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dan. So um, you've been spending the last three months, I know, you've taken some time off to uh, finish, in your words. That's a very bold statement, finish uh, your upcoming book, that Navigating the Chaos of Change. Maybe we'll talk about the, the book writing process shortly, but I'm, I'm intrigued by the title, The Chaos of, of Change. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, in a nutshell, why is change so chaotic? Well, uh, when you have a status quo or an equilibrium and then you bring something in, um, it changes the dynamic significantly. If you bring multiple things in, which we are because there are so many different people involved in change often, when we talk about organisations, then you're bringing a lot of different dynamics. And before any change that is sustainable, there has to come some chaos. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's rather than avoiding the chaos... Or, or controlling the chaos because we can't. Mm. It's how do we actually navigate it in a systematic, human-centered way? Mm. And is there a benefit for wanting to f- almost find the chaos? Is there is there growth in the chaos itself, or is it a case of we just you know it is what it is? You have to go through it. But are there benefits of the chaotic nature? Well, I like to, and I do use this analogy in the book, uh, if you have a messy cupboard at home, Mm. and all of us have that messy cupboard somewhere Mm. in our house or drawer, and, you know, everything is stuffed in there and there's things that are expired, there may be things that are broken. So you walk past the cupboard and sometimes you ignore it and think one day. Mm. And then when you finally had enough and you face that cupboard, you will face the chaos. You open it and it's chaotic in there. The first thing that you need to do, and we all do, is unleash the chaos we take everything out of the messy cupboard put it on the table and we look at it and we face it and it's chaos at that point and at that point a lot of people give up Mm. you know they look at it and they're like way too big of a task I'm going to just shove everything back in and keep going as I was but the key here is how do I navigate that chaos that is that I'm faced with and once I unleash it only then can I actually go through and organize it and and think about what I do need in the future and what does that ideal cupboard look like so you go through and you you know take away all the expired things and that could be old mindsets old legacy systems it could be uh, ways of doing things ways of working it could be uh, behaviors uh, values that are no longer relevant um, so all of these things skill sets tools so you look at all of the things that are existing and you sort through them get rid of the things that you don't want and then sometimes we need to go shopping mm. right <laughs> what do I want in my new cupboard? What tools, what gadgets, what um, ways of putting it together that is actually makes sense to me now? And then also I need to bring my family on board, mm. right? So I come in and I say, okay, to my kids, can you reach the lollies? All right, let me put them a bit higher. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can see that they are part of that um, change and they 
feel like they've owned it as well so that when it comes to actually adopting it, that new cupboard, mm. it's much more sustainable and much more successful for adoption because I've had a say in it rather than I've had I've done this amazing job myself and mm. I open it and I say, ta-da, you know. Um, they will often, and we see this a lot in organisations, when one or two people make the change happen and then they do this ta-da moment, which is what I call it in the book, then this is met with fight, flee or freeze mm. response. So how do we avoid that so that people are engaged throughout the journey and they don't resist and that's how we see resistance a lot. Yeah, so I mean there's lots of books out there on change. There's lots of articles written in various journals on, on change. I'm curious to um, hear because I know you do think this but I'm curious to hear what it is about the new way of working or the new world in which we're living whether that's been well I'm sure it has been compounded by the past couple and a half years but what are the missteps that people are making what's two or three of the most common ones you see uh, when you go and work with people that's a really good question. So a lot of uh, my research, uh, I had a look at existing change models and uh, frameworks. And what I saw often was this, and again, I refer to it as a lineage of linearity. Mm. So it's model after model after model of linear approaches. So step one through to five, step one through to eight, step one through to 12 and so on. And what this alludes to is that change can be simply and consecutively controlled and managed, which is not the case. Um, there have been statistics flying around for decades now that have shown that change projects often fail. And I've experienced it myself where we've come into a remedial project. So it's gone over time, over budget, um, and now we need to rescue it, so to speak. And, um, and this is... Because, again, we go through it as if it's a sequential tick this and then tick that. Mm. Do this document and then you'll be okay, you know. Yep. Do a stakeholder analysis and once you've got that, then change. that's change mm. management, you know, 101. And in my book as well as a lot of my research, I'm trying to move and I've sp spoken to hundreds of change managers about this who tend to agree actually that the word management mm. is doing us no favour. Because we cannot manage the people aspect of change. These are emotions and, um, and reactions that we can't manage. But what we can do is facilitate the process. Um, and that's why, firstly, change management as a word needs mm. to change. Yep. Um, secondly, as well, how we navigate it. So it's not a simplistic one, two, three, four, five model. It needs a framework, and that's what I propose in the book and in my research, a framework that is dynamic, that is live. So I compare it, you know, instead of, for example, a street directory mm -hmm. where it tells you go to here, go to here, go to here, um, and follow linear lines, you know, just that from A to B, we need a sat-nav, mm -hmm. something that when it comes – hurdles come or a block comes how do I navigate around that mm. and that's the difference between a model and a framework um, and so those those are the biggest areas and also having and exploring the factors and tailoring it to that particular setting again when we come with a predefined model we go in and we say this is step one regardless of where you're at mm. which is not the case um, you know some organizations might start at not knowing what their problem is 
So you have to explore the factors and the, and the root causes. Some might know the problem, but actually they don't know the strategy. So then you look at the problems and establish strategies. Some may have already established some strategies, but they want to evaluate the progress of their change. So you start evaluating their baseline. So we have to be able to tailor our starting point and how we navigate that um, in relation to that particular setting. How do you... Um how do you negotiate, for want of a better word, with leaders or organisations who go, um, that sounds all, all great, Lydia, wonderful, but we kind of need this change to happen now. You know, and there's this real yeah. impatience to, to make things work and, and make things better or you know, change one system out for another. How do you, yeah, how do you negotiate that? How do you get them to that position where they can realise, whoa, 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 <laughs> it's not that easy? Mm. And um, it does happen a lot. And for me, it could take, you know, if a project, let's say, is, you know, we've put one or two years to it, it te- can take up to three to six months just to convince leadership of the proper process and get them on board. But it's so worth the time of it. So whatever it is where, you know, and I use a combination, obviously, evidence and case studies and how it relates to them in the, their actual organisation, but most importantly, speak to, speaking to their people. Mm. So once we speak to their people, once they speak to their people, understand what the actual root causes are or what the actual pain points of their people is, then we can have a better understanding of the conversation. I could come with my own expertise and knowledge based on other um, settings, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the correct change for them. So we've had that in the past and it has been a you know open and honest conversation to say, well, actually, is this suitable for you? And when we haven't had that conversation, they can go down a whole route of, you know, doing, 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 and then realising six months or a year in that actually this is not for us. So it's so imperative to have those conversations with leaders right at the beginning. It strikes me that everyone has a at least one frame of reference in their professional life and p- certainly in their personal life, I'm sure, as well, where they've they've wanted to make a change and perhaps they've even set out to make a change. It could be a dead small habit or it could be, you know, in schools, it could be changing the way we mark the roles or in business, it could be how we engage with our clients or whatever it might be. And everyone's got a frame of reference where, oh, it didn't quite work. And yet it strikes me that those very same people will then think, oh, but it'll work this time when I'm in charge. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like we, we kind of overestimate our ability to convince others and bring people with us. Again, I'm, you know, I'm curious to hear how do you, when, when you have that leader who's, you know, let's go, because you, you, you've never worked with me before, just watch yes. me in action. How do you help them just put on the brakes a fraction just to, you know, get the bigger picture in, in the way that you're thinking about? That's a really good and we see it a lot in government as well because with government ministerial changes that happens quite often and you see, you know, they come and they want to do everything differently. Um, the, the, what I've seen and I've seen it in education in schools as well, um, the key here is not the reliance on the person but an establishing a system and, again, navigating through a particular framework so that regardless who's in the leadership seat or any other seat um, – the, it keeps going um, in a way that is strategic, in a way that is aligned uh, with all of the relevant stakeholders and towards that particular vision. So while leadership is critical when it comes to change, but what leaders often try and do is, yes, the reliance is on them and purely them. And unfortunately, we see the character their character come out rather than, you know, what is actually good for the business. So essentially, it's making sure that we embed 
some sort of framework and this is what we help to do and this is when we come in is we look at where they're at at, at the, that time and the leader might have huge vision and a lot of different um, uh, ideas for how they want to implement their changes or what the changes are but it's about saying well hold on a minute um, where are you at the moment where is it so where's that baseline have you evaluated that have you engaged and equipped the right people have you um, empowered them to make the decisions as well because if you give it to them on a silver platter chances are they're not going to be open for it or um, own it so um it's really important to have leaders on board and have great visionary leaders, but also you need to assist them on a framework and line with that to keep it on track. When we think of the framework and we're saying, okay, well, you know, um, it'd be good to have more voices, stakeholders. Because one some of the pushback I'll hear sometimes, you know, is uh, oh well, we can't ask everyone, yes. <laughs> or we don't have time for that, or their opinions more. I'm curious if there is a. a and again, I'm, I'm almost sure that the answer is probably no, or it depends. But I'm wondering, you know, where the tipping point is, if there's a tipping point between how many people do we need in this? You know, we talk about buy-in, we talk about engagement. What's a rule of thumb, perhaps, rather than a the strict line? What's a rule of thumb for trying to engage our people or whoever's involved, or stake, you know, stakeholders, to use that wonderful word? Yes, that's right. Um so, I'd, I mean, we have the adoption curve, which uh, we can go by, for example. You know, you have your innovators, your early adopters. Um, so, generally, your early adopters are great at being your change champions. And the change champion is a concept that I, qu- I use quite um, often in organisations, especially those large organisations. So, I've worked with global organisations in the past where, uh, for example, they want a global transformation and they have, you know, uh, one business and all like, you know, franchise in every single country mm. in the world. So how do you get that yeah. type of buy-in? So you get your early, you know, what I've done is I've gotten the early adopters in from every single area and they have helped and, and together there is that alignment. So you get a lot more traction, a lot faster, still while engaging all of the people that are heavily impacted by it and have a big say. So you, there's always a way to do it. Mm. Um, it's just how willing are we to have a proactive in-depth approach at the start mm. rather than wait and do a small group to do it at the beginning and then again that ta-da moment to everyone else um, in the organisation. So it's a little bit upfront heavy mm. and I always say that to organisations. It's going to take a bit of time at the, uh, at the start. It will cost a little bit more money at the start but in the long run mm. it will cost you a lot less in terms of effort, mm. trust mm. and resources um because you're not having to you know push that you know boulder up the hill of the resistance Mm. you know it's actually just going to come all the way down really quickly because you've done all that upfront work so i'm thinking that sometimes um you know some of the voices the stakeholders um opinions perspectives that we need to hear from in in a change initiative I'm, i'm imagining that sometimes leaders or organizations might be a little disinclined to hear from them um, or on the flip side that those people feel that they're you know it's better to keep their head down for for whatever reason and you just mentioned the word trust and I'm, I'm wondering how you can build trust specifically deliberately as opposed to just leaving it to time you know leaving it to well if we if we work together long enough you know both you're trusted as the external um, consultant but also trust is built within the organization 
you talk to me a little bit about the, the concept of trust in change and how you view trust? I think trust is one of the key factors that can make uh, change successful or unsuccessful also in a, t- in a faster time period if you want to save time in that area. If you leave it up to chance and just how we do things, it will take a lot longer, um, especially if trust has been broken consistently in the past. Um, so how I like to, you know, and obviously there are may a lot of definitions in the literature around what trust is and lots of research around trust, especially in organisations, but I always like to bring it back to how I explain it to my five and seven-year-olds, right? Um, so I say to them, you know, trust is when the words equal the actions, right? So we have respect for everybody, um, but the trust piece is the one that needs to be earned. So when words equal actions, that's when we can trust, and that has to happen cons- consistently. So that breaks down when those things, there are promises made and they're not followed through consistently. Um, so we, the first thing that we need to do is build that, rebuild that trust, and it has to be intentional. And you talk about the people that are, you know, maybe like keeping their head low um, or maybe they're resisting change in the background. I always say, you know, if you're going to focus on people, focus on those people. And I know some people, um, and I've worked with leaders in the past and who say, but why would we engage them? What about if it's only, you know, 20% of them, are the negative ones, and then 80% of the positive ones? Why don't we just focus on the positive ones? That we need to do it simultaneously, right? Because, you know, there's the Pareto rule, which is, you know, 20%, um, you know, can actually affect 80% of your work. So don't underestimate the 20% resistors. Um, but also, by the same token, don't totally focus on them so that it's just them. So you have to balance both. Understand what their challenges actually are and what their concerns are. Usually they're seated in a deep experience and, you know, that iceberg of mistrust and previous experiences, previous, um, you know, wrong beliefs or even, you know, they've experienced it themselves, whether it's in that organisation or other organisations, but they just bring that with them. So understand what their actual concerns are, navigate them. Don't overpromise things that you can't deliver. Um, I know sometimes we want to give everyone everything and then we fall short and that's when we when that trust is broken. So be realistic and really understand what their concerns are and to navigate it together. If they constantly see you as coming with all of the solutions, then they'll rely on you for those so when you you know can't deliver those solutions, which we can't all the time, then you're going to be the one to blame. So have that co-design approach, ask them for their feedback and their insights. And that is how we start to build trust bit by bit. Mm, and d- does that fall into the the remit of the champions that you were talking about before? I'm, I'm curious to hear more about, you know, I, I appreciate what you're talking about in terms of being the early adopter, but more than adopting and, and doing stuff, what what is the role of the champion? How do you, how do you, yeah, how do you articulate that to them? What's expected of them during this? So usually the champions are the ones who, you know, are always have been looking forward to a potential change um, and they are ones that want to role model it and showcase it and sometimes even act as your trainers for that particular change. I know I've worked in the past where we've introduced a new technology and um, those champions, some of them had been using it for quite some time. So then they role model and they train others. Um, so the change champions are great in that sense that they can really scale up your change much faster than you could do it by yourself 
or if leadership was to do it by themselves. Um, but in terms of the other spectrum of the resistors, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we tap into those and understand what their concerns are. And sometimes we've even moved resistors to become change champions and that they become your gold, mm. right? Because they've been the biggest naysayers, yeah. but then all of a sudden they're completely on board and they will, you know, call it out on top of the roof. So that, that would be the best scenario where you change your resistors to change change but that does take time but we cannot ignore the ones that resist um, and sometimes when you show them the change and you discuss it and and you know you're either for the vision or you're either or you're for division mm. essentially right yeah. so then it is up to them to say well actually you know what i don't want to be part of this change this is not for me and that's fine yep. um but we just need to make sure we iron that out instead of having them silent in the background and their concerns not addressed. Because yeah. they're probably not silent, right? That's exactly <laughs> right. They may be silent in front of you yeah. in those workshops, mm. but yeah. certainly not in the background, yeah. So you mentioned uh, the word vision there. And when I hear people talk about vision, often they'll articulate, okay, this is the what and this is the why. And I... I think sometimes and I know that this is you know inherent throughout a lot of change um, theory what's often missing is that yeah we get that but why now mm. <laughs> you know so I, yeah. I, intellectually I kind of get the what and the why but it's a more emotive thing of yeah but why should I stop doing what works for me now to swap over to this thing can you talk a little around um, how it might play out when intelligent highly capable people don't understand the urgency of a change yeah and again not everybody will, and that's why you have that adoption curve. Um, but it's a matter of understanding from their perspective the why now, and that's what we often miss. So the vision can sometimes seem so far away, intangible, um, and so they're like, well, why should I? This does has nothing to do with me. Um, so how do you make it so that it goes from the vision filters down to granular benefits to them? Um, and that is the really key. And again, it takes a lot of upfront work, but it's so worth the investment because then you can say, well, actually, why now? Because this is going to help me specifically, not just the organization's vision, but me specifically in my immediate work. So, for example, we've worked with organizations where it's a global organization, um, but yet then there is, you know, you've got your global leadership, you've got your local leadership, you've got people in the head office, then you've got people that are potentially in, you know, the factory or in the warehouse. You know, if they're going to make changes of ways of working right from the top, how does it actually affect me at the warehouse? And so you need to make sure you go all the way to that, you know, in that area and in their environment and speak to them about what their pain points and how this is relevant to that particular change and often we miss that we just it's just trickled down well via email mm. um and it's communicated so it becomes you're informing mm. rather than engaging mm. and there's a big difference that organizations still simply don't get it's we, but we've let them know of the change yeah right but we've never engaged them in the change yeah and so because when I'm hearing you say that, it, it, it's almost one way of hearing that is saying, well, if, if we're doing a change and having to articulate on a granular level, what you know, to each individual, it, what what if the change we're making doesn't impact? To use the example you've had, the the, the you know the, the team in the in the warehouse, is it a case then of just informing, or do they, you know, maybe I'm making a change here, which 
maybe I can't even see how it might affect them. Or, or, or are we suggesting that no matter what we do and, and you know, whatever we do, there'll be like this butterfly effect. There will be some impact on this person or this team. Yeah. So it depends. If, if, if they're not impacted by it, why are we even informing them? to begin with you know is it just as an fyi okay so something's happening at head office just thought you'd let we'd let you know but if it's actually impacting any bit of their ways of working and like you said i mean we you know in schools like if it's just marking the role Mm. um we could just articulate that there's a new system now that is going to mark you know we're going to use to mark the role but if it's impacting even you know any of the students or any of the teachers and they need to know how it impacts them and how it's going to make their life easier. In that warehouse, they need to know how it's going to make so that they can be invested in it and actually put effort. And that's where you have, again, Change Champions are great at you know helping with that because you'll have someone potentially at the warehouse who can help with that adoption. Yep. So if that's not impacting them, okay, yeah, it's an FYI. Yep. But if it's impacting them, even in the most incremental way, they need to be on board with it. I'm wondering also then if we always know if it is. So I'm wondering, I mean, I'm mm. just wondering, even in those initial, the very initial stages that you were talking about, maybe let's find out. Like we don't know if this is going to impact. Is that, have yeah. you had examples where that, where perhaps people weren't aware of the impacts until they uncovered them through focus groups or, or Exactly. Or so in change, in traditional change management, there is something called an impact assessment and that highlights the impact for stakeholders. I like to take it a little bit beyond a spreadsheet of mm. impact or one focus group and really engage everyone throughout to make sure that we understand what is the entire journey of that change and who is involved. So journey mapping, things like that, that really help to articulate where the different areas that are impacted are, who are the people that are impacted, to what extent they are impacted, what do they need to make sure that they are adopting this? Is it a particular resource? Because we often say, see, you know, change is happening at a bigger level and they're like, well, I want to make this change. Mm. (laughs) I have the desire, I have the skill but I don't have the resources. Or maybe I do have the resources, but I don't know how to use those particular resources. So until we map out everything, and again, it's that upfront, proactive time, it takes time. But unless we do that, then we're never going to know the impact of it. How, how, how important is changing the, the mindset of, of the organisation or the other teams as well? Um, around Because I can imagine in many... So I'll give you an example. You know, A lot of the time I find myself working in sport, which is obviously a very outcome driven environment you know results matter and people get fired if they don't produce results it can be hard for me sometimes to go in and say you know i'm interested in results but i'm more interested in the process that can be a tough sell you know to somebody who's looking at you going mate my job's on the line here and you're talking to me about process um talk to me a little bit about how the mindset what kind of mindsets do we need to adopt in there if we're going to um, you know, in, in high stakes environments, which I guess is dependent on your own definition of that phrase, but, you know, where results are important, but we need to be able to view the process as being e- at least equally important. Yes, definitely. And that's something that, you know, a lot of, a lot. it's not uh, probably not just in sport, a lot of organisations really struggle with and it's that tactical versus strategic, mm. right? I want to just get things done mm. the way I have. But also I want to work strategically so that in the long run I'm doing things the right way. But they constantly overlap because if we keep going down the route 
of constantly doing the same things over and over as we always have, we won't get to that strategic, mm. right? So, for example, and I'll give you an example of when we were um, – I was helping a uh, technology uh, company implement chatbots for universities where the chatbot um, would – you know, the student can ask the chatbot the question and the chatbot would respond with the answer. Now, this required a lot of, you know, upfront work, especially from the lecturers because they have to be given the answers for mm. uh, the questions and then they provide the answer. There was a lot of resistance from the lecturers for a number of reasons. And it was all around that mindset that you touched on. So, for example, when we dug a little bit de deeper why they're not using it, the lecturers, um, they would say things like, well... I don't want to lose a human touch where the, you know, the student is contacting me. Fair enough, but how much more time is it saving? And we calculate it and it would save them hours per day just mm. to have this. And then – but the habit of, you know, but it's easier to respond to them via WhatsApp instead of, you know, the, it goes through the chatbot, I answer it through the chatbot and then the chatbot responds to them. So it's that ease. So there was a lot around ease. There was a lot about – but it's my IP mm. as well. So letting go of that um, mentality of my IP, but you have to be able to think a bit broader than that and realise that, you know, this is something that will save the students and you time and there's that consistency. So all of these things, bit by bit, once we navigate it and truly understood what their concerns are, then we'll be able to tailor them more more so and it was all around that mindset it wasn't that it's not just a time issue time is always used as a caveat and as a first first line um it's always you know it comes down to that mindset that changing of habits and behaviors making sure that we redirect sorry i can't i can't answer you via facebook anymore i can't answer you via email anymore direct direct so it takes a lot to change that and mindset is the hardest to change, but the one that needs the most work. Because mm, it's occurring to me that most of the barriers or um, issues that people would bring up are probably less intellectual and more, you know, identity-based. Like you mentioned IP, I'm giving up my IP, but I'm, I'm also thinking that, you know, many people might be thinking of giving up their identity right you know like i'm the person people go to for example mm -hmm. i'm the yep. you know this Power. is my way of doing things yes. and it's not just um because I, I could of course i can understand the time saving thing the money saving thing mm -hmm. you know it but it's a it's an interesting one even when you think about i guess even really broad political type change or environmental type changes intellectually i can get it but you know people aren't they're not rushing out to embrace you know electric vehicles necessarily or whatever That's it is true, yeah. and, and i don't know there's a cost factor there but i'm wondering how much of that is mm. identity based and emotive and yeah I'm, I'm just again i'm sort of just teasing it through about the the prep work that mm. needs to go into that and, and i'm wondering how often people do just go with the intellectual argument they just go with the, the data sheets the profits the mm. in schools you know the results for kids you know just raw scores and I'm wondering, yeah, as, a, as I'm thinking about this now, is we need to flip that. Um, and if they haven't been involved, and again, if they haven't been involved as to the why right from the beginning. So, yeah. again, a, a big challenge in change management at the moment is they involve the change manager um, or the facilitator right before implementation occurs, not at the design of the change. Yeah. So this plays a huge part. If, you, if they're 
change processes and that framework was used right at the beginning at the inception of the change, then we would be able to tailor the messaging and know what is actually required for those particular lectures, for mm. example, rather than, again, being at the end and it's reactive and we're trying to convince them mm. to adopt. So the earlier we start that navigating that change, um, the better that we are will be equipped with the right answers to get them on board because they're the ones involved in those answers. Instead of saying, you're going to save time, they're going to say, well, actually, I'm going to save time. Yes, it means that I'm not going to be the one who is, it's maybe it's a power, like, you know, the power or the authority figure in that space, but actually, I'm going to spend much more time with my students one-on-one, face-to-face, doing real work rather than answer, answering the same question from different student every single time so if we you know and again it's all about involving them right really early on that Mm. proactive upfront approach because it strikes me that the people who you know are often least impacted by the change are the people who are doing all the thinking about the change yes that's exactly (laughs) right and and it's like you know so they spend months maybe even years you know digging into everything until they get to the point where they go oh we should definitely do this and then they think a 60 minute presentation with a flashy PowerPoint presentation <laughs> will will move everyone. And and I often talk about this, you know, if you're blissfully unaware of the need to change, the longer you're blissfully unaware of that need, the harder it is to change. So that we probably need to yeah, it's a fascinating reframing of it yeah. to 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 bring those people with you rather than just have that efficiency model. I'll do all the thinking and and then roll out and then get cranky when they don't buy in. Exactly right. And you know what, sometimes it's a matter of they're trying to perfect the change before it goes out, mm. right? And what we need to move away is move away from perfection to iteration. So trust your people that they will come up with the change, but also trust that they there will be failures, there will be experimentation. I mean, I I, I work a lot with in healthcare, and the concept of failure to them is like, no, we can't. We have to make sure things are perfect before they go out to our customers, before we, they go out to our staff. Yeah, but you're in science, you know you are all about experimentation and a part of experimentation is failure. When I was doing my PhD, I had colleagues that were doing, you know, cancer research and time and time and again, they would come out of the lab and say, it's failed again, but I've learned that this is what I'm going to do next time. And so we need to embrace change in the same manner in our organisations that it's totally okay to involve and fail and experiment and iterate until we all collaboratively come up with a solution that we're all happy with and that works for both us and our customers. So, But people just want it to be perfect and, again, they want that ta-da moment. Because, again, if we go to the identity thing, they want to be seen as the one. That's exactly right. The Mm. saviour or the hero or Mm. the leader that's moved them and had that brilliant idea. But that's not the point. The Mm. point is that... you. You need, and I've, and I always say, I and I've said it to organisations when I've worked with them. I need to make myself redundant, mm. right? I will know I've done a good job when you don't need me anymore, mm. because you have built your capabilities, your change capabilities internally enough to not need anyone to help you navigate it. You're already the navigators of yeah. that. So we need to make sure leaders have the same concept instead of coming in and saving, because once they move out, mm. it's all going to crumble again. Yeah. Which again keeps circling back to that mindset piece of, you know, it's not about you. It's about, you know, whatever the people are who are, who are impacted by it. We're, we've got to be okay with iterative processes and, and experiencing setbacks in the change process itself, not just the thing we're trying to change, the actual process itself, and then convey that to the people. Because again, I think I often see that people won't then 
let's say they even do buy into, yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm just not ready to do that yet. I, I can't do it yet. Yeah. So again, almost you know, changing that as well, saying, no, no, we don't expect you to do it yet, but let's make a start so we can embrace that learning across the organisation. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we, I've helped organisations with agile ways of working, for example, mm. and um, some people are like, oh, I just don't like the idea of, you know, failing fast. Mm. I'm like, so would you rather fa- fail slow? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like why not fail mm. fast and quickly and learn mm. rather than fail really slow over a long period of time after you've invested all these resources? Mm. So it's, again, yeah, exactly. It's all about that mindset and shifting that failure is okay. Mm. And unfortunately, you know, again, when you're talking about education, in our education system, we don't really embrace failure very well, Mm. right? It's all about scores and your ATAR and things like that. So it's really important that with our young ones, whether it's in our family or friends, to embed that, again, that growth mindset Mm. so that it's okay that I'm still learning. Um, You know, my my daughter now, her favourite quote is, um, you know, practice makes progress mm. right yeah. not, perf- yeah. not nothing is perfect we have to constantly you know grow uh, and ha- progress so that iterative approach that agile way of thinking that um, it's okay to experiment and come out with some good some not so good and then reiterating but as you said within the process of change mm. so your book navigating the chaos of change it's out um wh- october october yes yep. and what, yes. what can we expect in that so um, it's uh, a lot of uh, case studies around how we've been able to navigate change and done well and not so well and what's learnt. Um, a fair bit of research around the neuroscience of change, so how us as humans um, think about change and navigate change in our mind. Um, it's uh, around, you know, understanding what are some of the factors. So according to the research, we've, we've highlighted over, you know, 36 different factors in one study that can, call, that can be a barrier to change. So exploring some of those factors um, as well as that framework. So um, a framework on how to navigate change in a systematic yet dynamic way Mm. so that you can start wherever your organisation is or your family is even. You know, there's a lot of parallels and I love paralleling kind of – the changes in an organisation compared to a change in community, compared to those changes in around the globe and in comparison to my family, for mm. example, you know. So how, as teenagers, how do you navigate teenage troubles and rebellion um, with all of those changes and hormones mm. and, you know, peer pressure and how do you navigate then organisational restructures? And so it's quite broad but at the same time it's very much focused around the, that systematic approach and framework mm. for change. I'm, I'm interested, you said 36 factors. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, you know, off the top of your head, if there was one that sort of stuck out as being perhaps it's less spoken about than most, you know, like maybe there's one which is a surprising one or one that is forgotten a lot of the time. Yeah. Look, there's um, a fair few and when we looked at the top 20%, there were across a couple of studies, there were a few overlaps and some of those overlaps included obviously, you know, a big one which is communication, Mm. Um, so lack thereof. Um, Another one was the resources as well, so lack thereof or the lack of adoption of those particular resources. Um, resistance to change so you have you know active resistors is a big one Um, time does come up but only in the first couple of you know um, for example if we've got a two-year study we did a two-year study and it came up in the first few visits when we visited those um, practices and 
after that it didn't mm. because it wasn't actually time. Yeah. Right? It's just an easy one to talk about, right? At the start yeah. and yeah. say, nope, sorry, I can't make this change. Yeah. I don't have time. And then when we implemented some timetabling, rostering, mm. added some more resources, it still wasn't done. So it's not really time. What is it? And then it, you have skills and experience. Um, so knowledge and skills is a big one as well that comes up. And, um, and you know, a lot around processes as well. Um, one that we don't talk about often is feedback. So that comes that's come up in the top 20% of lack of feedback and monitoring. So sometimes we kind of focus so much on implementation and then once, you know, and there's that go live date, right? Yeah. Can't I, every time I hear a go live date, I cringe inside because it means that it's once it's go live, it's, it's set and forget. Done. It's yeah. done, which is so you know mm. inaccurate because that's actually when this change starts to happen, yeah. right? Yeah. So I like to say instead of go live, go live it, mm. right? Go live it and see what people are experiencing when you've touched, you know, you've clicked, you know, okay to start everything. Um, so. That feedback and monitoring is so critical and can make or break the sustainability of that particular change. Because if we just also monitor and evaluate based on the whether it's time and budget, how do we know if it's actually been adopted? And I see this a lot in organisations. Yep, we uh, went live a year ago, but uh, we've got like 2% adoption. Yeah. Right. So you spent all this money, all this time, and it's sitting on the virtual shelf <laughs> Collecting virtual dust. Mm. So how do we make sure to constantly embed that feedback and monitoring is really critical. Which, I mean, just that itself, that experience, you know, just adds to the, the cynicism perhaps in places. Oh, here we go, another new thing. You know, yeah. keep your head down. It'll be, you know, they've obviously been to a conference. They've heard the latest big thing, you know. it's it, it, And that change fatigue. And I, I guess against the backdrop of the past couple of years as well, where everyone's kind of had to work in different ways. It's, yeah, it's a really, um, it's a fascinating thing. Again, because I don't think anyone listening, you know, would would deliberately set out to do that because they've probably been on the receiving end of that. And yet it's funny, we have these blind spots and we just keep doing the same thing. So I'm curious just to, to, to round this out is like, if there are any obvious red flags that, if, if you're if you're listening to this today and you're going okay well I think we're ready for a change I think I think I think I've done a good job I think you know I'm wondering if there's any sort of like red flags that perhaps they should just do one last little look on the horizon for to go oh you know what maybe we just need to give it a fraction more time or maybe I need to go and speak to those people or yeah that's exactly right speak to those people mm. and go and see what they think what they believe what their pain points are does it align with the change that you're implementing or are we just grabbing the latest shiny object mm. right um and look i've you know at the start of my career i probably fell into this trap that you know yes i know the answer let's do it let's do this and um and from that i've learned that actually it's not about the answers that we bring it's not about the shiny object at all it's about what is needed at that time from those people and sometimes even just exploring what their challenges are can unearth so much that you didn't even realize was there and you re and you realize that hold on i was looking at this shiny object but actually there's some you know kind of systemic root issues like we talk about culture we talk about leadership role modeling and engagement you know those systemic issues need to be addressed first before i go to anything that is going to improve processes or systems of what always of working and that's what we often happens you know they, we go, we come in and you know there's this change that needs to happen but in the exploration phase we're like hold on 
all of this needs to be sorted out first before we even think about bringing this new change because if, like you said if there's so much change fatigue because oh it's another thing that they're bringing on board we need to rebuild that trust first before we even think about bringing something else on board we've spoken a little bit about mindset and, and learning and obviously no one does a phd without a learning mindset and but i'm also interested in just the, what did you learn through the process of writing your book and, and being able to put everything down into you know something that's probably for a more mainstream audience than perhaps your phd was yeah no definitely no one wants to pick up my thesis and read that that's a good <laughs> bedtime story um, <laughs> um yeah look it was a really big learning curve for me um because you know when you have a thesis and you're writing your thesis it's all evidence-based it's very heavy you go through lots of iterations with you know your colleagues and things like that and um and it's for a particular audience however with the book you know, I actually had to, I, I wrote this book maybe two or three times over, really by the end, because, you know, the first time I was, I went way too much on the, you know, book, uh, pick up any time, kind of, you know, nice, lighthearted. Um, and then I, the next iteration was way extreme of, you know, too much evidence and research. And then the final iteration, I happened to find that balance in between of a combination of both because that's how my mind works that's how a lot of people you know you need you know the the brain and the heart working yep. together right um the art and the science so to speak so it was a, it was a big process for me um but when I finally kind of put you know the final iterations and you know before I pre press sent to the publisher and um you know it felt much more right um but yeah you learn a lot because then you reflect a lot it's like you know I I personally learn by more by teaching as well like so when I say I'm you know learn something and then I relay it it all connects small and this was the same in the book having to make those connections and saying oh yeah hold on I did experience that and this is the framework and this makes sense so it was a huge learning curve for me even as I was writing the book of my own experiences and other people's experiences um and it's just it was it was uh I really liked the process I really did um but it wasn't something you know like I tried the whole sitting on a couch and writing it out and you know um, going off site yeah. somewhere and having you know nice music it didn't work like yeah. that for me at all in the end I had yeah. to be in front of the computer yeah. with lots of things on both screens and yeah. so it's not as glamorous as sometimes they make it out to me and you would know that right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had a period similar to you I gave myself um little I know you said you gave yourself three months to like really pull it together I, I gave myself a fraction less than that but it was literally just excuse like get my ass in the chair yes. <laughs> and just turn up yeah. day in day out and get it done as you say there was no walking through the fields just no. waiting for inspiration to strike it was like just just keep writing until something comes out and then and then attack yeah. it with you know fine tooth comb so it's um I, I think you know it's it's obviously uh, an, an issue it's a phenomenon it, it's something that everyone's dealing with change and i'm really looking forward to uh, seeing how your book is received when it comes out it's called navigating the chaos of change if people listening um you know are a couple months out from october right now they're going oh i'm not missing this where could they connect with you and learn more about your work and perhaps even you know make sure that they don't miss the book when it comes out yeah, so it's um, available already for pre-launch sale um, on our website, so thechangehub.com.au. Um, so you can grab it from now and then you'll be, you know, first to get it when it's hot off the press, so to speak. <laughs> so they can get it um, through that. So 
it's um it's yeah it look it's exciting so it'll be october mm. it's gonna be um we're gonna do a little bit of a launch for it as well but the idea is um you know just anyone just to embrace start embracing change so it's mm. not such a boogeyman word anymore yeah. like you know um it's it's to, it's part of our life now it's inevitable it's constant um but we have to understand that nothing about it is simple mm. right and uh, you know people are like oh why don't you you know call it you know a quick guide or mm. a quick you know yeah. step there is nothing quick about change yeah. not if you want it we want to do it properly if you know effectively and sustainably as well um over that long run and we want to see the fruits of it so it's um it's going to be a bit confronting yep. you know um to see how complex it can be but again reassuring that when we have a framework again it's dynamic that we can navigate it we can all have the skills to navigate it it's not something like that comes naturally to everyone no as humans we fight change it's yep. just embedded in our psyche you yep. know in, it's in the neuroscience it's our survival mechanism so how do we override that and and navigate it in a way that is much more pleasing and also embed that resilience in the future generations which is really key for me as well Cool. Well, I'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes to your website where people can get the book. And I'll also put a, a link to your LinkedIn profile because you often post some uh, useful articles and some provocative statements. I remember you uh, ch- chipping away, at, I won't say who, but a pr- quite a prominent uh, change <laughs> author. So uh, yeah, if you're after a bit of controversy, maybe follow Lydia on LinkedIn <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having us um, at your house today, as it yes. turns out. And um, all the best for the upcoming book. And I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thank you, Dan, for having me. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. So as I mentioned, you'll find in the show notes all the links to Lydia's work and, of course, her upcoming book. If you found that conversation worthwhile, as we always say, please feel free to share it as far and as wide as you can. And whilst you're listening, why not like the podcast, share the podcast, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Until our next episode, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. We hope you found it worthwhile. Take care. Take it easy.